Father, as we come to your word, we praise you and we worship you because of who you are. And we recognize, O Lord, that you are holy, that you are righteous. And we thank you, Lord, that you are also merciful. And so we come before you asking to be fed, asking for our our daily supplement, our daily bread, that you would nourish our souls with with your word, and that you would instill in us a great sense of hope in you and in your plans and in your purposes for the glory of Christ. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, you're going to want to turn to Genesis chapter 39. We're going to be looking at all of Genesis 39 today. As I said, I don't know, probably a month ago, we've, we've finally hit a section where we can cover like a chapter at a time, uh, which means we're, we're picking up steam. After today, we're only going to have 11 chapters left in this study, if you can believe that. But we'll be looking at Genesis chapter 39 today. And as I studied this chapter, I was reminded of the fact that Americans love rags to riches stories. And, and I'm absolutely no exception to that. And I think that the reason that we love stories like this, rags to riches stories, is because they kind of epitomize, in a sense, what we might call the American dream, which is that if you work hard, the sky is the limit. According to Wikipedia, uh, when you look up rags to riches, this is what it says, quote, rags to riches refers to any situation in which a person rises from poverty to wealth, and in some cases from absolute obscurity to heights of fame, sometimes instantly. This is a common archetype in literature and popular culture. For example, the writings of Horatio Alger, Jr. End quote. Now, if you have never heard of this guy, Horatio Alger, Jr. wrote books that were primarily aimed at young men, teenage boys, in the late 19th century. And a lot of the stories that he wrote were about young men or, or boys who started off in obscurity and poverty and who worked their way to prosperity through hard work and virtuous living. And considering that it is now the month of March, which means it's time for March Madness, those of you who enjoy college basketball have a different term for it. You call it a Cinderella story, right? Everybody's heard of a Cinderella story. We, we love those stories. We love stories in which the underdog comes out on top. I mean, I, I know I do. When a 16 seed beats a 1 seed, which almost never happens. I think it's happened a couple times during my life, but it almost never happens. But that's exciting, and it's, and it's big news because it's almost unheard of. But the story of Joseph is a little bit different. In fact, it's the opposite of a rags-to-riches story, at least at this point. We, we saw a couple chapters ago that Joseph was a very energetic, often bright, not always, uh, a very lively young man who was the favorite son of a very wealthy and influential, powerful man, that being Jacob. And it seemed that at 17 years of age, which is how old the the text told us he was, at 17 years of age, the future for Joseph was bright, and the sky was the limit for somebody like him. But he was also kind of naive and prideful, which caused him to sometimes be a little bit foolish, right? You remember what he did? God gave him two dreams in which 
he was exalted and his brothers and family members were all humbled. They bowed before him. And he was more than eager to go and share the content of these dreams with his brothers and with his, his father and mother. It wasn't the wisest thing to do because they understood what those dreams were saying. They were images of Joseph being exalted above them and them being humbled. And so the hatred that his brothers had toward him just simmered and, and built up and built up. And when they, when they, uh, they learned about how Joseph uh, uh, was, was his favorite son, how he'd been given this coat of many colors, Jacob sends him to go and attend to his brothers who were working out in the fields of, you know, by Shechem with the livestock. And the hatred for, that his brothers had for him just hit a boiling point finally, and they decided to murder him. But then Judah comes up with the idea, instead of selling him, because they profit nothing if they just shed his blood, but they could profit by selling him to some people who were passing by, some merchants who were heading down to Egypt. And so with that, Joseph went from riches to rags. And chapter 37 ended with these words. It said, Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So last week we looked at chapter 38, which is one of the more explicit, um, one of the more disturbing chapters in Genesis, but uh, it's also a, sto- a story that's filled with grace. Because Judah, who is this wretched sinner, ends up making a turning point in his life. It's the story of, of Judah and Tamar. Um, last week we actually had more people missing than present, so I would strongly encourage you to get online and to get caught up, uh, listen to that, uh, that lesson. But nevertheless, our passage today picks up sort of where we left off at the end of chapter 37. In fact, it almost says exactly the same thing. Chapter 39 starts by reminding us about what happened to Joseph. Let's look at verse 1. Genesis 39, verse 1. It says, Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. And Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. So we're going to be looking at this entire chapter today. And the main point of this chapter is that God is with us, both in times of prosperity, when everything is going great, when you're on top of the world, and He's also with us in times of adversity and hardship when you are in the valley. And this is a lesson that we've actually seen repeatedly through Genesis, isn't it? We see it's a roller coaster. You get a high point where Abraham or Isaac or Jacob, they do something good and immediately they're tested and they mess up. And so there's this steep fall. But this is an important lesson, obviously, because it's being repeated over and over and over again in different contexts. And this is important for us to grasp. Because as science has actually come to understand the brain and the way it functions and the way we learn and the way that we take the information that we've learned and apply it, is to see the same principle in multiple contexts to see the same principle in multiple contexts. As that happens, the neurons of the brain reinforce all these pathways that lead to behavior, and we get changed. Now, of course, there is also an aspect that the Holy Spirit must play. Absolutely. Without the Holy Spirit, that doesn't happen. But 
There's a science to this. There's a science to seeing the same principle applied to multiple contexts. And when we see it applied, repeated in multiple contexts, we're exponentially more likely to not only understand it, but to apply that principle to our lives. And Genesis is a story of God's unswerving faithfulness. And that's something that should give us great confidence and an increasing desire to use and to live every aspect of our lives, every aspect of our lives for the glory of God in the presence of God. And that should be our response to the passage that we're going to look at today as well. So Joseph has gone from riches to rags, from freedom and from having the favor of his father and from from living extremely comfortably in his father's house in the promised land to being a slave down in Egypt, which is far, far away from home. He's never been there before. He's been sold into slavery to Potiphar. Literally translated, it says that Potiphar bought him from the hand of the Ishmaelites, but the deeper truth is that he wasn't in the hands of the Ishmaelites, and he isn't now ultimately in the hands of Potiphar. He's in the hands of God. So let's look at verses 2 to the beginning of uh, verse 6. It says, The Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him, and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant, and he made him overseer over his house, and all that he owned put in his charge. He put in his charge. It came about that from the time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge. And with him there, he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. So we immediately see that the theme of this chapter is laid out in black and white, very, very clear language for us in verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph. There's the theme of the chapter. The Lord was with Joseph. And it's not only something that Joseph believes, it's also something he's aware of, but it's not just something that he believes and he's aware of, but others are aware of it too. Other people who are close to him, are noticing that God is with him too. Look at verse 3. It says, His master saw that the Lord was with him, and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. What a strange thing this must have been for Potiphar, who had no familiarity with Yahweh. So Joseph is a slave, a common slave. And yet, in spite of these awful circumstances, he is prospering. And we're supposed to see that this happens very quickly and very unexpectedly. It's, it's unexpected because Joseph is just a common slave. He, he, he wasn't worth a lot of money. And the fact that he's actually in a very low and humbled position is underscored in the way that Moses, the author of this text, contrasts the lowness of Joseph with the height of his master's position. Potiphar is an exalted figure in their culture, in in, in Egyptian culture. 
He's high and in a highly esteemed position. He's not only a high-ranking official under Pharaoh who rules over the land, but he's also captain of the guard. And as Potiphar realizes that everything that he puts in Joseph's hands turns to gold. Everything that he entrusts to Joseph prospers. Joseph starts very quickly finding favor in his master's sight. And so Potiphar gives him a promotion. He makes Joseph his personal servant, his personal assistant. And at this point, he start, Potiphar is starting to realize that he just can't go wrong. That everything that he's putting in Joseph's care is prospering. It's all doing well. And so he gives Joseph a second promotion, making Joseph the overseer of his house, which puts everything in Joseph's care except the food. And what happened is Joseph was put in care of Potiphar's house, in care of everything in Potiphar's house. Everything in his house prospered. All of it. But it wasn't because Joseph was this great worker. It wasn't because Joseph was brilliant. It wasn't because Joseph was diligent. It wasn't because Joseph was skilled. It all prospers because the Lord causes it to prosper. Which, by the way, should remind us of another story earlier, right? When Jacob was in his uncle Laban's house, and everything in Jacob's hands did what? It prospered. Everything prospered, and so Laban prospered. So in just these, these first few short verses, we see a glimpse of something bigger. We see a glimpse of the fulfillment of God's covenant promise to Abraham, which we saw back in chapter 12, verse 3, which said, In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Through Joseph, God's blessing flows like this raging, uncontrollable current to just one family. And not only is it one family, but it's a, it's a Gentile family. And, and beyond that, it's an Egyptian family. And this reminds us that when God makes a promise, you can take that check to the bank. You can add a few zeros and take that check to the bank. It's going to cash. He's good for it. He sticks to His promises. Of course, the ultimate fulfillment of this covenant promise to bless all the families of the earth is found in Christ Jesus, who Paul says in Galatians, redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. That's the ultimate fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. So we're told that, that Potiphar has put everything except the food in Joseph's hand. Literally translated, uh, that's what it says, in his hand. Uh, the, the text will say in his charge, it's in his hand. And it's kind of significant. It's one of those things that I think the translators may have overlooked because in somebody's hand is a theme, a subtle theme in this chapter. So everything's in his hand except the food. And commentators are kind of divided on why that is, the significance of that. But it probably had something to do with ritual preparation of food. But we need to understand that Joseph came into this chapter as this stranger in a strange land. Egypt was this unbelieving, this pagan, polytheistic culture. 
And there were false gods and idols everywhere. Pharaoh himself was even considered to be a deity. He was believed to be the falcon sky god Horus, if you're familiar with Egyptian mythology. And yet we have to see that none of the culture's gods moved Joseph, nor did they prosper Potiphar. Now Joseph only recognized one god, and that is Yahweh. That was the God who is with Joseph. In fact, we shouldn't overlook the fact that Yahweh is the personal and covenant name of God. And Yahweh's name is found a total of eight times in this chapter. We've already seen it just in these first few verses. We've already seen it a total of five times. Is that significant? Absolutely. I mean, we've, had, we've had chapters where He's never named at all. And sin seems to be winning the day. Of course, it never is. God is always working behind the scenes. But nevertheless, the fact that we see His name, Yahweh's name, so many times, His covenant name, is supposed to be a reminder for us. This is a fulfillment of the covenant. This is God's faithfulness being put on display. So it's huge that Moses would be reminding us of God's covenant promises and His faithfulness. But think about Joseph's circumstances. From a human perspective, it would have looked like God was absolutely nowhere to be found. In fact, from Joseph's perspective, it may have been tempting to see things like that. And yet, at the scariest, at the most unstable, at the most frightening and uncertain time of his entire life, Yahweh, the God of the covenant, was not only with Joseph, but He was for Joseph, and He was working to fulfill His covenant promises through Joseph. From a human perspective, Joseph appears to be alone. But we know better. We know better, right? He's not alone. We're told that the Lord was with him. And the God who was with him and for him was demonstrating His power and His sovereign authority by prospering everything in Potiphar's house that Joseph was entrusted with. So Joseph has gone from riches to rags and, and kind of back to riches again. Not that he's really rich because none of what he owns belongs to him, but he's at least living in this luxurious place under somebody who is prospering. He's living a comfortable life again. He's living a luxurious life again. Now before we continue, I want to make one thing very clear. This passage, this chapter, this book, this Bible, does not teach that if you are in Christ, you will prosper materially. It doesn't say that. This passage does not say that. This passage does not imply it. But I can see how somebody could pull it out of a text like this. How? By confusing description with prescription. Do you understand the difference between description and prescription? Description is saying this is what happened. Prescription is saying do this and this will happen. Or, or just do this. But by confusing these two things, you can come up with a pretty severe heresy here. In fact, the one who's prospering, we should make note, is Potiphar. Not Joseph. Potiphar's prospering. Joseph still owns nothing. And Potiphar, as far as we know, isn't even converted. So make sure that you know how to make a distinction between something that is 
prescriptive and something that is descriptive, and you'll save yourself from becoming a complete heretic with a passage like this one. So if anything, see this passage in light of a passage like Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24, where Paul says this. He says, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Now there is a promise of prosperity. Spiritual prosperity. The reward is spiritual. This is a command, by the way. This is a command to do all of our, thing, all of our work as unto the Lord. And it's a, it's a command and it's a promise. Serve the Lord well, knowing that your reward is something better than material prosperity, which can be destroyed by moth and rust. See, it's one thing to know up here that God is with you and that God is for you. It's it's easy to know that. Satan knows that God is there. He knows that God is omnipresent. But it's another thing to live our lives in a way that reflects that belief, isn't it? That's our challenge. To not only know up here that God is, is with us, that God is, is here in our presence, or we're in His presence, but to live like it and to act like it with the right motivation. That's the challenge. So let's continue. The, the end of chapter, uh, or the end of verse 6 to verse 10. It says, Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. It came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph. And she said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. And he has put, me, and he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you're his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? As she spoke to Joseph day after day, he did not listen to her, or lie beside her, or be with her. So the story kind of takes a turn. This is the story taking a, a different direction now, all of a sudden. As Joseph, we're told, is exceedingly handsome in appearance. He's handsome in form and in appearance or or stature. And that's actually the same phrase, believe it or not, that was used to describe his mother, Rachel, back in chapter 29. And it's possibly worth noting that only these two characters, only Joseph and Rachel, are described with these two words described this way. So it seems that there was something exceptionally attractive about them. Something in the genes that was exceptionally attractive about them. And so as Joseph is going about his daily business, taking care of Potiphar's stuff in the house, all the men one day, all the men of the house are gone. And Joseph is left alone with Potiphar's wife who, by the way, like Judah's wife in the previous chapter, remains unnamed. So this is obviously a very um, dangerous, tempting situation. 
you know, here's Joseph standing tall in his Egyptian tunic. It's displaying the breadth of his shoulders and the, the slimness of his waist and the muscles in his arms and all that tan he had from working outside. I mean, he was the whole package. And on top of that, we know that Joseph was, he was 17, maybe 18. At the oldest, he was 19, based on what we were told about his age just a couple chapters ago and how quickly this is all progressing. But if there's one thing that we know about young men in that age range, it's that their hormones are going absolutely crazy. And all the men in the house said, Amen, right? We know it. It's true. Physiologically, we're going crazy in that stage. And when you mix that with, mix all of that with a woman whose husband is almost never home and who is probably feeling somewhat lonely, it turns out to be kind of a recipe for disaster. So in verse 7, she gives him a command. She says, lie with me. We all know what that means, right? She's not asking him to twist the truth. She's asking him to engage in an illicit encounter with her. And we need to understand that this is not a request. She's not asking him. She's telling him. It's a command. It's an indecent proposal. And it's an issue of power. It's an issue of authority for her rather than an issue of love. So it's a command also that Joseph technically doesn't have the right to refuse to comply with. Because he's a slave. She's over him. So he doesn't have the right to refuse. This is his master's wife. But Joseph refuses to go along with it. He refuses to comply with her command. And he appeals to three things. First, he appeals to the trust that's been placed in him. Look at verse 8. He says, My master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all that he owns in my charge. He's appealing to the trust that's been placed in him. And this is exceptional wisdom for a young man whose hormones are raging and who's away in a far land. I mean, how many of you know that it takes one second to lose somebody's trust, and it can take years to earn it back if you're able to earn it back at all? Second, he appeals to the loyalty uh, that he has for his master, Potiphar. Look at verse 9. He says, There's no one greater in the house than I, and he, Potiphar, has withheld nothing from me except you because you're his wife. So he knows, he knows that to obey his master's wife would actually be to disobey what his master would have him do. So he's loyal to Potiphar. But more important than his loyalty to Potiphar was his loyalty to the Lord. His loyalty to God. He was deeply aware of God's presence with him. He knew that God was with him. He knew that God was for him, and he was loyal, ultimately, to God. Look at what he says at the end of verse 9. He says, Ever I do this great evil and sin against God. Because ultimately, every sin, you can sin against somebody else, but ultimately, it's against God. And we see in verse 10, his refusal to comply with this command didn't stop her from really sexually harassing him. That's, that's what she does. It's sexual harassment. She starts harassing him daily, instructing him 
commanding him regularly to lie with her. See, people have struggled with lust and illicit desires since the fall. And people struggle and struggle and struggle with sexual lust to this very day. It isn't anything new. But here's what I want you to consider. I want you to think about how how easy it would have been for Joseph to rationalize sin. To justify, in his mind, compliance. I mean, he doesn't really have the right to say no. And his hormones are at a boiling point. Sexual promiscuity has always been an element of slave culture. So it wouldn't be uncommon. One commentator says, quote, Joseph had every reason to be angry, bitter, resentful, cynical, fearful, self-serving, and self-pitying. Joseph had every reason to find fleeting solace in an illicit embrace, end quote. He could have tried to rationalize it. He could have tried to justify it. He could have just played the victim card. And besides, nobody back home would have known that he did this. But God would know. And he knew that God would know. And that should be enough to dissuade anyone from participating. So here's what we need to see. Joseph knows that God has not abandoned him, despite appearances, despite the fact that even from Joseph's perspective, it looks like he has just been left to the wolves. He knows he's not alone. He knows that God has not abandoned him. And isn't that strange? I mean, when you think of all the things that he's been through, don't you think that Satan has been sitting there whispering in his ear, trying to tempt him to believe that Satan or that, that God has abandoned him? I'm, I'm positive that he has, because that's the way he operates. But Satan is a liar. He's the father of lies. Joseph does not budge from his belief, from his conviction that God is with him. After all, if God wasn't there with him in this distant land, God would never even know if Joseph would have engaged in this indecent proposal. But Joseph knows that God is still with him. And so, this is the important part. He acts accordingly. He acts accordingly. Because it's one thing to know that God is with us. It's another thing to live our lives in light of that fact. I'm convinced that this is actually one of the most vital, the most important keys that you can possibly have to overcoming sin in your life. For example, when you use salty language, and you know what I'm talking about. It might even be stuff that they say on TV, but it's still salty. Whether you're at work, or whether you're with friends, or wherever you are, it's ultimately because you either don't know that God is there with you, or you don't care that God is there with you. It's one of those two. There are no other options. Because you won't use that kind of language in His presence, 
in heaven, right? And, and if you think that you will, go back to Isaiah chapter 6 and see the conviction that Isaiah is absolutely smitten with that his lips are unclean in the presence of a holy God. If you look at porn, it's the same thing. You either don't believe that God is there or you don't care that God is there and that He's aware of what you're doing. The same goes for any sin, for every sin, whether it's sexual or or whatever. In fact, our lives would be very different if we both believed and cared that God was always there with us. Wouldn't our lives be different if we constantly, consistently believed and applied that? Because the greatest deterrent to sin is an understanding and a concern for the fact that God hates sin. And knowing that God is aware of every sin that even crosses our minds. Joseph believed this, and he acted accordingly. He lived by this principle. Paul says this to the church in Corinth. He says, quote, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? It's kind of scary. He goes on. He says, Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's scary. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. How many of you could choose one or more of these words to describe something that you've done in your life? Paul knew that many in the church of Corinth had done these things, had been these types of people, but he follows that up by writing in verse 11, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. So implied in this is the fact that there has been a change in their lives. They were these things, we were these things, but now there's been a change. They once practiced these things, but the grace of God invaded their lives. We once were these things, but the grace of God has invaded our lives. Once they did these things, once we did these things, without worrying about offending God, But one of the greatest reasons for a person to start questioning their salvation is if they just don't care anymore if they offend God. And so they go on sinning without any hint of restraint or self-control. Which is one of the fruit of the Spirit, by the way. Self-control. Now it would be really easy to preach a very moralistic message here. In fact, a lot of people do. You know what moralism is? Everybody know what moralism is? Moralism is to say, don't do X. Don't do that because I said so. Don't do this because you are in my house. Don't do this because it's bad. That's moralism. You know what moralism doesn't deal with? It doesn't deal with our desires. It doesn't deal with the root of our actions does it? It completely, totally neglects the sinful desires that lead to sinful actions. The answer is not just don't do this because I said so. That's one way to do it, and you might accomplish what you're trying to accomplish. 
But it doesn't deal with desires. The answer is to desire and to love and trust God more than we desire the pleasure that X, whatever it may be, would give us. When sin is lying to you that it's going to give you more pleasure than God will, you have to find a greater promise, a greater desire for God. And you have to see that that promise, that X, whatever it may be, is giving, is a lie. See, our our nature is to pursue what we desire the most at any given moment, even when nobody is looking. And that's what integrity is all about. What do you do when nobody's looking? And so we have to come to see that God is more worthy of being desired than any sin. And God is more worthy of being pursued than anything. It's the difference between saying, keep your hand away from the cookie jar, and saying, how can you use your hands for the glory of God? Do you see the difference? Both, if they're followed, produce the same result. But only the second one deals with the motivation. Moralism isn't the gospel. Parents, if you teach your kids with moralism, you're only teaching them to be rebels because those desires are still boiling up inside of them. And when they can act out on them, they will because those desires haven't been dealt with. In fact, they've grown. Moralism produces rebels, generally speaking. Gospel parenting doesn't just say, don't you do this. Or don't you do that because you're in my house. It asks the right question. It deals with what pleases God. Instead of saying, don't put your hand near the cookie jar, try asking him, why do you think God might not want you to take another cookie? What can you do with your hands instead that would glorify God? See, that not only deals with the motivation, but it sharpens their awareness for grace. It sharpens their awareness of their need for grace. So as a general principle, this isn't a promise by any means because there are tons of exceptions, but as a general principle, moralism is going to produce rebels and the gospel is at least going to plant a seed if it doesn't produce repenters. Rebels, repenters. That's the difference. And it's huge. It's a huge difference. See, it would be easy to say, it would be easy to preach, and, I, and I, every week I listen to sermons on the passage that I'm going to be preaching on. And uh, I, I came across several that, that had this as, their, as kind of the central, mo, uh, the central principle. If Joseph lived a sexually pure life, you can too. And maybe that's true. But we need to look deeper than the surface. We need to see what Joseph's motivation was in sexual purity. Joseph was sexually pure. Joseph was a moral person here because he loved the Lord. And that was the difference. He knew that sin was an offense to God. God is with Joseph. Just like He's with us, but it's one thing to know it. It's another thing to live in light of the reality that God is there with us. But living like it must start 
with the right motivation. God is with Joseph as He is with us, both in times of prosperity and in times of hardship. And the fact that God is always there should give us great, great confidence in God and an increasing desire to live in light of His omnipresence, to live in light of the fact that He is there and to use every aspect of our lives to glorify Him. And that's what Joseph is doing. But beware of Mrs. Potiphar, Joseph, because those lips that have been trying to tempt you, they can lie too. Let's look at verses 11 to 20. It says, Now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the household was there inside. She caught him, Potiphar's wife, caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. When she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled outside, she called to the men of the household and said to them, See, he has brought a Hebrew to us to make sport of us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I screamed. When I heard that, I raised my voice. When he heard that I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. So she left his garment beside her until his master came home. Then, he, then she spoke to him with these words, The Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came in to me, and, came in to, me to make sport of me. And I raised my voice and screamed. He left his garment beside me and fled outside. Now when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him, saying, This is what your slave did to me, his anger burned. So Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in the jail. So eventually... This is something that's been going on regularly, and eventually the day comes when once again Joseph is alone in the house with Potiphar's wife, and she takes matters into her own hands. Literally, right? She grabs him by the tunic, commanding him once again to lie with her. But this time, she's not giving up. It's, it's violent. There's a struggle that ensues here. Because he has to struggle to get out of his tunic. And so it ends up being in her hand. Like I said, it's kind of a theme throughout this chapter. So he hightails it out of there. And, and he's, it's his only option is to, to hightail it out of there. But in doing so, he leaves his tunic behind. So again, note the irony of the garment being left in her hand. And this is... Mrs. Potiphar's chance to make sure that she doesn't get in trouble. After all, Joseph could report her, right? I mean, what if he says something? What if he says something to another slave and word spreads? What if he says something to Potiphar? But she beats him to the punch. And she, she calls in the men of the household who are around, who had been working outside, and she uses an, an ethnic slur, claiming that Potiphar had, been, uh, had brought in this, this Hebrew slave of all people, this, this Hebrew, to make sport of them. That is, to mock them. And then let's count all the lies. He came in to me to lie with me, lie number one. And I screamed, lie number two. When he heard that I raised my voice and screamed, lie number three. He left his garment beside me, lie number four, and fled and went outside. Okay, so this is based on a true story. 
<laughs> that part is true. He went outside. He fled. And apparently he ran far, far away because by the time Potiphar comes home, he's still gone. By the way, isn't it ironic, interesting, uh, that the coat of many colors was used to deceive Jacob into thinking that Joseph was dead, and now another garment is being used to falsely accuse him of something. Look at verse 17. Potiphar himself finally comes home. End of the day, we can assume. And note how she starts twisting the details, which isn't terribly surprising. First, she accuses Potiphar. It's it's the, the one that you brought in. Right? It, it's his fault that this happened, which is supposed to and, and does elicit uh, an angry response and a, a strong emotional response from him. Then she adds the word slave, whereas when she was talking to the men of the house, she used the word man, a Hebrew man. Before it was just the Hebrew man, now it's Hebrew slave. Then it was to make sport of them when she was talking to the men. Now it's to make sport of her. See how she's subtly twisting all the details to make herself the victim here. And when Potiphar hears all this, he's angered. But we're not told who he's mad at. You notice that? It doesn't tell us exactly who his anger is directed toward. Our instinct would be to think that he must be mad at Joseph. But we need to understand that in a slave culture like ancient Egypt, if a slave did something like this, he was immediately executed. No trial, no judge, no jury. He was just immediately executed. So I'm more inclined to believe that he doesn't trust his wife. And so he's angry at her because it means that he's going to have to deal with Joseph. Even if he doesn't believe her, he's got to save face and do something to Joseph. And I think that at the same time, he realizes that if he kills Joseph or if he, if he deals too harshly with Joseph, you know, all the prosperity that Joseph has brought him might be gone. So Joseph has been from riches to rags, back to riches, back to rags. Such injustice. There's so much injustice in Joseph's story. Where is God? Where is God when a loyal, faithful, obedient servant like Joseph is on the receiving end of such an incredible injustice? Where is he? You know, we might think that Joseph would be, would be mad at this point. But he's not. He doesn't show any indication that he's angry at God or at anybody else. Our, in, our inclination when things go wrong is, number one, to, to, to wonder if God is really with us and for us. And number two... To, to get some, a degree of bitterness or anger about the situation, whether it's toward God or, or wherever. But Joseph knows, Joseph believes that God is still with him. He's going to jail, but it's grace. It's grace because Potiphar had every right to kill him if it was true. God was still with Joseph, and if he wasn't, Joseph would have been executed. But now Joseph is in jail, and guess what? That is exactly where God wants him to be. How do you know that? Because he's there. Because if God didn't want him to be there, he wouldn't be there. Because while it seems like like Joseph is, is coming in for a crash landing, God is actually working Joseph into a higher position. 
Besides, now Joseph's in the perfect place to start a prison ministry, right? But we have to see that God is with Joseph. And God is for Joseph, just as He is with us and for us, both in times of prosperity, when everything is great, when our health is great, when our finances are great, and He's with us in hardship. And that should give us great faith in God. Great faith in God. Great confidence in God. And an increasing desire to live our lives in His presence. For His glory. Let's continue. Verses 21 to 23. It says, But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge, Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. It's one of the things you do when you're reading the Bible is you look for phrases that get repeated. Look at each repetition as one underline. And if you were to do that with this chapter, you'd see God is with Joseph underlined how many times? Multiple times. Don't miss this fact right here. God is with Joseph no matter what it looks like on the surface. So we're told at the beginning of this chapter that God was with Joseph, and we're told that he's still with Joseph now at the end of the chapter. In prosperity, God was there, and for Joseph. In affliction, God was there, and for Joseph. And because God was with him, Joseph starts prospering and even earning favor in jail of all places. And Joseph isn't angry. Joseph never complains because he believes and he does not doubt that God is with him and that God is for him. It wasn't Joseph's hard work. It wasn't his determination. It wasn't even his moral uprightness or his skill that caused him to prosper and to earn favor. No, the chapter ends underscoring the fact that we cannot miss that whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. It was all God's doing. It was grace. But we have to see that Joseph, while he is a great person, no doubt, he's still a sinner. He did sin. And his life actually points to something else. Joseph is a typology. He's he's a real person. But his life is a foreshadowing of a greater Savior who is to come. Joseph went from the comfort of his father's house to a lowly position in an evil land. And Jesus went from the comfort of his heavenly throne with the father to a lowly position on earth, being born in a manger. As the grace of God was upon Joseph, Luke 2.40 tells us of Jesus when he was young. The child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. As Joseph was a blessing to one family, Jesus would be the fulfillment of God's promise to bless all the families of the earth. As Joseph was tempted to sin and yet refused, Jesus was tempted in every way, in all things, just as we are, yet was without sin. As Joseph was silent when he was falsely accused, so too Jesus was silent when he was falsely accused. 
And as Joseph was sent to prison, despite his innocence, so too Jesus was punished, despite his innocence, with death. This story, by the way, would have brought up memories for the Israelites who were rescued from Egypt. They would have identified with Joseph and they would have been reassured that God was with them, whether in prosperity or adversity. And while there are all these parallels between Joseph and Jesus, just in this chapter, we need to see that God never forsook Joseph in any stage of his adversity. And yet Jesus, at the height of his suffering on the cross, cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As the sins of his people were laid upon him and he was momentarily forsaken by the Father and crushed for our iniquities so that all who turn from their sin and believe in Christ will never be forsaken by God. Never. And so with that in mind, grasp this promise in your hand and don't let go. That Christ has promised us I am with you always, even to the end of the age. May our response to such unmerited, incredible grace and assurance be an increasing desire to not only know that God is with us, but to live like it, to bring every aspect of our lives under His authority and to use every aspect of our lives to bring Him glory. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we confess to You that uh, we are regularly assaulted by temptation to sin. And we also confess to you that we often lose those battles. But our prayer, Father, is that you would teach us to hate sin. Not just to be moral people, but that you would deal with the root of our desires and our motivations. And so we pray, O God, that You would extinguish from within us the ember of sinfulness that ignites and lights up with just the slightest breath of temptation that comes our way. That You would douse it with Your grace and put it out for good. That we would be moral people not because it's the right or wrong thing to do, but because we believe that You are greater because we want to live our lives for your glory. Deal, O Lord, with our motivations. Give us the wisdom that Isaiah had in recognizing his uncleanness in your presence. But give us the humility of the tax collector who cried out, Lord, be merciful unto me, a sinner. Thank you for making atonement for our sin. 
Father, thank you for sending the Lord Jesus to be our substitute, to stand in our place and to die in our place, to take our sins upon himself and to clothe us with his perfect righteousness. All unmerited grace, all undeserved, all out of your own goodness. Teach us to live lives with an increasing desire to be obedient to you and to see the deception of sin for what it is and to pursue you instead and to obey you instead. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper